Hi, welcome to Valley Talks. My name is Sylvia Gorajek and today I'm very excited to speak with Jeffrey Shox, patent attorney and founder of Shox Patent Group. Jeff's office works with top startup accelerators like Y Combinator and AngelPad. He also not only works with a very selective number of clients, but actually invests in some of them. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. Um, what's the most common mistaken way uh, founders think of um, patents? I think it's the emphasis that they put. And so, so many folks come to us and they want to build a patent portfolio immediately, um, just about the same time that they start. And there's so many times where good ideas just simply aren't that patentable. You need to be able to go a little bit further into the woods. And so being able to pull together a team, to be able to um, attract some money, and to be able to focus on a problem for a year or two gives you the, the type of insights that become patentable. And so oftentimes, folks will come to us um, and put too much emphasis too early mm -hmm. and then not enough emphasis on intellectual property and patents in particular um, a year or two or three in. Um, at that point, they're typically raising money, mm -hmm. they're building a company, they're trying to establish a culture. They have so many other things um, that are distracting them that they're not thinking about patents. So they often come even before they start the business. Oh, yeah. Um, to like uh, the for idea, us, uh, yeah, for us, level. it's... You know, some folks that are, you know, still working at Google and they talk to us before they, before they even leave of, uh, hey, we need to file a patent. And maybe that makes sense to file one or two, but it typically doesn't make sense to file six or 12, you know, in the first, you know, few months. Yeah. And that's typically what you kind of discourage them to do. I do. I do. And it seems strange at mm -hmm. times to say, like, look, you don't need all that right yeah. now. You need one or two provisionals. Um, go out and raise some money, build a team, and then your your team is going to start developing that great technology that's going to put you in a situation where you could build a great portfolio. How about the purpose of a patent? Yeah, so in, in startup, uh, startup land, um, the purpose of why you build a patent portfolio is very different than Fortune 500. Mm -hmm. I think when, you're, when you think about what Fortune 500 companies do, um, they amass lots and lots of patents. I mean, Google is filing thousands of patents every year. Mm -hmm. um, and Apple um, and Google, Amazon and Microsoft have thousands and thousands of patents. And so every year they're adding a few more, you know, lots more onto this mm -hmm. very large pile. Um, they're doing it for a few reasons. Um, some of it is to show Wall Street that they're technologically savvy. Mm -hmm. um, another is to engage in what is called mutually assured destruction. Um, I have a bunch of patents, you have a bunch of patents, let's not sue each other, um, let's just kind of yeah. continue to move on um, and both um, build our products and sell our products. Every once in a while you'll see a little squirmish, um, the, obviously Samsung, the Apple, and the design patent. Um, but when you think about how many patents both you know, the big companies have and how few patent uh, infringement lawsuits they get into, it's pretty astonishing. Hmm. It's usually just, look, there's no way we're going to win. We'll both just kind of destroy each other and make a lot of money for patent litigators. And so the way that they think about patents is this kind of defensive, um, build up this mutually assured destruction position. Mm -hmm. Maybe add a little bit of value with respect to, to Wall Street. With respect to um, startups, it works, but at a much, much tinier version of that. 
And so if you're trying to think about building up a portfolio for value, you might have a couple of patents you know, in a series seed or a series A. If you're trying to be acquired, it might be nice to have a dozen or two dozen. Um, and that might actually add a few million dollars, maybe a million dollars each, um, to your valuation. And so that could be a way to add some value four or five, six years from now. Mm-hmm. Investors might look at that now and say, um, hey, this is something that can grow into an asset that could be super valuable. And so there's some things with respect to value. But what I think is one of the most important things is this deterrence. Like, let's keep the startups alive. And so if you're going up against, say, AT&T that has 10,000 patents, and you're an early stage startup, having building up a portfolio mm-hmm. so AT&T doesn't sue you out of existence is incredibly important. Having some patents that they infringe so that they don't sue you is super important. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not going to sue an early stage startup if they, in turn, infringe patents. It's just going to be too um, dangerous for them. They have so much to lose. Mm. And so it's almost as if it's like life insurance of a sort. You know, it's trying to keep um, a worst case scenario from happening, mm-hmm. um, in this case of being sued by a competitor. And at the end, you kind of turn it in for something of worth some value. How about uh, protecting ourselves from um, from the competition, the early stage competition that may arise as well. Because sure. you know there are so many startups uh, coming up every week and month yep. over here. And so none of our clients, and we've represented 400, have ever sued a competitor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't necessarily view the patents as kind of this offensive tool um, in the sense that of a lawsuit but they often use it in terms of some kind of business negotiation. Okay. You have a bunch of patents that, that um, you infringe of ours. Or we, have some infri- we have some patents that you infringe. What we'd really like is to be able to acquire you for this amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, or we'd like to be able to have this distribution channel or this partnership. And so it's almost used like, like a club of sorts to get some things that they want accomplished. Um, and it's a business asset that can be used like that. And so I don't see too many of our clients using the patents to strike down other startups, mm-hmm. um, but it might slow up some other startups in some ways. You're putting a hurdle, um, you're putting a roadblock behind you. And so they may have to design around, they may have to think twice about can they actually just go ahead and copy if there are a couple patents. Yeah, because what I can, you know, I, I had a startup too, and we were thinking this is so unique, uh, the process that we were designing, that we, uh, first of all, don't want to talk to anyone uh, before we patent this. Yep. And second of all, we were so, you know, scared that someone, that we may read on TechCrunch or other news, um, that, you know, someone else is doing the same what yep. we were doing or similar so um, you know we were thinking of patenting it very early on um, just to protect ourselves from that but actually from you know what you repeat often in your presentations is that patents are not really helping much in like you know fighting against a competitor when you are just so small yeah that's, they're so expensive of, yeah. and they take so long you know so a patent you might file a provisional um, and then a year from now, you might convert that into a full patent application. 
And now you have a piece of paper that says that you could do something. Mm -hmm. And that to do something, though, is cost millions of dollars. And so the concept of, of actually enforcing a patent, um, it's actually called the sport of kings. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it's that expensive. Yeah. And so that's just typically not what startups do. Um, startups move fast and they continue to sprint forward. It's and then maybe growth. they throw some, some um, landmines or roadblocks behind them. Um, but they don't typically sit around and, and try to fight you know, the, mm -hmm. their, com their competition. So when is, according to you, the best time to uh, file for patents for startups? Yeah, so I, I think that it's a, it's a, you could think of it in terms of almost the same kind of growth pattern mm -hmm. that the company has. And so if you wanted to have at some point, say, 20 or 30 patents, you wouldn't go out the first year, the first six months and file 20. You might file one or two or three. And then mm -hmm. the next year you might file four. And the year after that you might file six. And the year after that you might file 10. And the year after that you might file 15 or 20. Mm -hmm. But it has this kind of almost exponential growth that you see in terms of revenue or cash in bank mm -hmm. or the number of people on your team. I mean, everything else that kind of grows exponentially with startups. So it's good to start with like one at the beginning, right? And how about this um, aspect that um, you, you cannot really file for a patent for something that is already public or is already on sale? Mm -hmm. uh, how does it relate to the fact that I have a product that is actually using this, this invention already? Yeah, so there's, with respect to your own stuff and your own publication, mm -hmm. that gets kind of tricky, especially in kind of lean startup land. And so a few years ago, kind of before lean became much more popular, um, it was fairly easy. Everyone was super secretive, and so they never stumbled upon themselves. They didn't um, trip themselves up. Mm -hmm. They didn't publish and then think later, oh, wow, maybe I should have patented something. They didn't go to trade shows first, you know, because that, that was just something that people kept much more secretive with respect mm -hmm. to their own inventions. Uh, Lean Startup is great, and it's produced some incredible um, startups and has produced just an incredible way to get to the right point in terms of now we could throw some fuel on this and really grow. And I completely um, you know, love the model. The problem is mm -hmm. it is that it's in tension with patent law. Yeah. Um, and so you want to get out there, you want to get feedback, but yet that is, can be considered a public disclosure. And if it's a public mm -hmm. disclosure, you've now already lost your chance to file in many countries, if not most of the countries in the world. Here in the United States, we have a grace period of 12 months to go ahead and file after that public disclosure. Okay. Um, but you've already lost all of your rights huh. in Europe and in China and in Japan. So you cannot build a product that has features that are um, the ones that you want to patent later on. And so you can build it. It's, the, it's how much public disclosure do you have? Well, yeah, but you're going to you know, put it on the market. Right, right. And so, so any kind of anything that's for sale or anything that we're trying to get some feedback from folks mm -hmm. that are beyond the non-disclosure agreement, that would be a public disclosure. And mm -hmm. like I said, in, either, in foreign countries, that would be, well, you've already lost your rights. Um, in the United States, you're starting a, a one-year grace period, so kind of a clock that starts mm. ticking. We never want to have um, the patents team slow down the startup. Mm -hmm. And I might turn um, to either a client or a potential client and say, look, we could file a provisional patent application. And a provisional is much cheaper. Um, in fact, the class that I teach 
um, is actually how to write your own provisional application. It's mm -hmm. not that hard. There are a couple of major tricks, and so a lot of people get it wrong, um, but it's not that hard to do. And it's $130 in government fees. Um, it's effectively a white paper. Um, hey, this is the technology, and this is how we use it, and this is where it could go. And as long as it does its job, which is to teach someone a bunch of details about your invention, mm -hmm. then you, you'll get that date. And the important thing is that if you convert that provisional within a year, and no longer than a year, you'll get that date. The full application will be treated as if it was filed mm -hmm. on the same date as the provisional. And so this is a terrific way for early stage companies that don't have the cash. Um, but want to get out there with a particular product. Yeah. Can it to, be turned down? Turned down? It's not actually examined. Okay. And so it's um, it's really hmm. just telling the patent office, I have this idea. And so when you later um, try to file the full patent application, you could tell the patent office, see, I had the same idea 12 months okay. ago. Please treat this full application as if I had filed it 12 months ago. So obviously before, the, you know, before any public mm -hmm. disclosure, um, before any uh, publication or anything like that. If I actually wanted to hire your office for uh, helping with me with the provisional too, and non-provisional, what are the costs? Yeah, so in, in our office, and mm -hmm. so in the law firm, we, we actually cost, we, in my firm, we charge quite a bit of money for a provisional. We charge $8,000 for that. Mm -hmm. um, there are other law firms that might do it um, cheaper. Well, the approach that we've taken, however, is let's file a provisional application that has a lot of depth to it. And so our provisionals are typically about 20 pages long. Um, that's longer than some people's full patent applications. Mm -hmm. And those provisionals have a ton of information and a ton of different directions. And so early stage companies pivot and they evolve yeah. all the time. And what you want is that this document has kind of foreseen a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's not going to be useful. Mm -hmm. And so if it, we put all that effort in, then that we're going to get that date um, with a very high, um, high likelihood. Yeah, and then it can be just maybe one non-provisional instead of a couple of them if, yes. it's, if it's bigger, yep. right? Absolutely. How about non-provisionals? Uh, we charge a little bit less than 20, um, mm -hmm. so 18 right now. Um, for one for a, a full patent application, and both of those are they include everything: government fees and legal fees mm -hmm. and drawing fees. And um, we're a little bit different. Not too many other law firms have kind of those flat rates around these things. Um, it's flat rate for every single technology. Um, all we do is early stage startup work. Still referring to the fact of you know the invention being public. So this also um, works in a situation when we. Uh, see a competitor doing this and they haven't filed a patent so we also cannot file patents for that. Right? Correct and so someone else who's kind of beat you huh. to the public disclosure um, has effectively ruined your chance of turning around and filing a patent application. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind though that there's so many nuances of an invention and so maybe someone had filed something or had publicly shown an invention that looks similar mm -hmm. but if there's something that's different either in the front end or the back end or the logic or the algorithms or something, we may still be able to find something that's patentable there. Um, yeah, so in the beginning you mentioned that not everything is patentable. And what is the most typical uh, 
invention that is not patentable that you are coming across? Yeah, so right now it's very difficult to patent software in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, that's changed quite a bit over the last few years. It's still changing. Um, the courts can't seem to um, mm. have, like they're not stabilized on this issue at all. Yeah, so they don't like all those apps coming up and probably right software apps. Um, so some of so some of that, but I think that um, it's a little bit more of you know some of the algorithms that are mm -hmm. being used. Um, now, if we make a computer better in some way, then we could actually say this isn't really software as much as it's a software hardware thing. Um, if it's a um, Internet of Things, an IoT device, we could turn around and say, look, this is a piece of hardware and this is the kind of software that goes along with it. Yeah. Um, if it's a wearable, like we have some, you know, something that's there, something that's a hardware. Yeah. Um, we're having a hard time getting things through um, that are just kind of pure software. Or just so, sort of like matching, uh, you know, speakers with conferences or... Sure, you know? something, yeah, something that has a... Um, humans used to do this type of element, okay. uh, but now we're doing it mm -hmm. with computers. Um, that happens to be particularly hard to patent. How about communication? Um, so in some ways, that's, um, I mean, that's what we do with Twilio. Um, we've had quite a few issued patents there. And so, yes, that can be very patentable. Um, and we haven't had the same kind of problems as like some other um, areas of software patents. Thinking about the competition, if we want to file something, um, it's hard to find out whether this was already uh, filed before. Yes. How, uh, Not only hard, but actually impossible. Impossible. <laughs> um, so you can't go back 18 months. We can't see it at all. Mm -hmm. um, patents are issued at the 18-month mark, or sorry, and published at the 18-month mark. Yeah. And so when they publish, like now we could actually find them. They're indexed, and we could search, and we could, um, you know, we have, there's tags with um, who filed it, the inventors, the companies. But before that, we can't even see that. And so in a fast-moving space, we often don't even do a patent search because we can't see the last year mm -hmm. and a half. Mm -hmm. And what's the consequences of that? Sometimes you have things that are like slightly overlapping. Mm -hmm. you know, so maybe a competitor tries to file something and they have one aspect of it, and you file something and you have a slightly different aspect of it. Mm -hmm. uh, from the patent office's standpoint, they're different inventions. Mm -hmm. And so you, they might have a patent, and you might have a patent, and that might be okay. Until you kind of try to start fighting over this. And well, we... the, the idea here is that maybe you, neither one fights, because yeah. you both have some patents that you both might infringe. And so how do investors view um, the portfolio of patents uh, during a pitch? I can imagine it's obviously, you know, just always working for the better, but uh, how it is in practice, because, you know, uh, we may wait with filing because we don't want, we don't have money. And so how it looks when we are kind of talking about that we want to patent this versus we already patented that and, and versus like totally having any patents to file. The, the thing that I coach our, our clients with when they raise money, and our clients have raised $2 billion in venture capital, so we've gone through this a few times. Mm -hmm. And what I've coached them is that investors don't give them a snapshot. You don't say that, like, here is you know, our patent portfolio today, but rather, here's our patent portfolio, and this is where it's going. It's the same thing of everything else with respect to a, a startup. Show the momentum, show the growth, show where it's headed, and so effectively show the strategy. 
of, hey, here are our three different differentiators within this company, mm -hmm. um, whether it's faster, stronger, more durable, great. Um, here are the things that we are going to, this sets us apart from other um, companies in this space. And we've already filed a patent application, a provisional on one of these. Um, we're planning on filing two more next year. And you know, within a few years, we'll probably have a half a dozen patents. And so showing the, showing the investor, this is where we are and this mm -hmm. is where we're headed along this particular path. Not, hey, we filed two and that's it, mm -hmm. but rather show them the strategy, show them where they're headed. These are the types of things that we want to patent. This is when we will patent that. Uh, and how about, you know, if our invention is not patentable, do you, um, do you, you know, because founders come to you and they want to patent something, they, you know, you, you tell them that this is not going to make sense, right? Almost all the time. <laughs> Almost all the time? That's in most so cases? A lot of times we say, wow. look, there is just simply nothing here. Do you think that this is, um, lowering their value when they are talking to investors? Um, I don't think so. And mm -hmm. so um, you could say, look, it's just a different narrative. And so in that case, it might be um, we're pulling all these open source modules and putting them together. Mm -hmm. And so this is now a very low technological risk. Um, the flip side of a low technological risk is that there's nothing there that's patentable. But you know, from a nothing is patentable, there this positive spin on that is that we're taking all of these things off the shelf and putting them together. And so we can always spin that as a, um, hey, there's a risk that we are lowering because we are using things that are common. Um, these either these software modules or these components that we bought off the shelf. Also, I'm thinking of a situation when founders are working somewhere full time, you know, often over here in big corporations yep. like Apple, Google, Facebook, yep. and they are already working on their own startup. Um, what's the risk um, in you know working on our own thing while we are employed? Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty big. Um, and so you know, whether that's like a Google or an Apple, um, and Google, those companies have their hands in just about everything. Uh -huh. So it's very difficult to come up with a company that's um, while you're at Google and say with a straight face that this isn't Google property hmm. um, because they're into everything, um, especially now the way that they've kind of split up the company. And so from a, like an alphabet standpoint, they're everywhere. And so to say that I've come up with a new idea and I've developed some intellectual property and it doesn't belong to Google or alphabet, I think would be a stretch. Hmm. And so there's, and that puts a little bit of a, a challenge as to when do you file that with those patents? Um, you know, who owns those? Um, it also complicates things when you're brainstorming or collaborating with folks that are kind of moonlighting um, you know, with your startup mm -hmm. and they are working full time at Google. And so mm -hmm. there's, if those, all those companies, all the employees have signed agreements that's, you know, that say anything that I invent is hmm. owned by this company. So it's like 24 hours? It's just... So there's some ways that you could say, look, this is on my own resource, this is, or my own you know, computer, this is on my own time. Yeah, um, because machine matters as well. But you're not going to be able to say that this search engine um, that I invented while at Google is not owned by Google. 
And so oftentimes if people are inspired by the things that they see at work and inspired by some of the problems and want to start a company around that, mm -hmm. well, that causes some problems because that company could actually own that intellectual property. Yeah, but if it's a different product, if it's not, you know, related to what we are working on, because often we have an idea even, you know, earlier on, and then we, before we start the startup, mm -hmm. we anyway start working mm -hmm. somewhere, right? So, um, isn't there like just some hope <laughs> for us to... So, this is know? the law, right? So, it's an unlike um, science or engineering, there's arguments to be made both ways. Okay. And so, hey, this is something where this is mine. Um, this, I use my own resources. I, had, you know, I did this on my own time. Um, and this is significantly different. Um, the other argument is you're inspired by your work here. Um, you were hired to solve these same problems. Um, like this is our intellectual property. And so, again, because it's the law and not an engineering or science thing, mm -hmm. there could be arguments there. Um, now, if, you're, if you fail, the larger company's not going to care. Um, there is nothing to fight over. Mm -hmm. um, if you become the next billion dollar company, uh, you might be bringing some lawsuits you know out of out of the woods mm -hmm. um you know those folks might come back and say look you actually invented this while you were here and we own a part of it mm -hmm. uh, summing up this part of our conversation it looks like first of all you know startup founders shouldn't um, um, think of filing for a patent as against competitors right so they they can um just think it of does, it in terms make of, sense in their but situation. Think, of it, think of it in terms of I want to be able to um, keep ourselves out of a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And who might sue us someday? And will they infringe this type of technology? And then it's worth to file one or two provisional, at least, um, mm -hmm. at least you Typically. know. Typically. Yeah, even at the idea, stage of an idea, right? So if they yep. come to you, that's probably what you advise to them. Yes. And then, and then just uh, take care about those applications. Yes. Not abandon them yes. totally or forget, forget about them. And um, and also um, at least be very cautious when you are working somewhere and you are um, doing an old startup. Um, that's at least like just make sure that this is super separate as yeah. much as possible. And Jeff, you are um, running your own patent office for uh, thirteen years. Yep. May I ask how old are you? <laughs> because it looks like you started when you were what, like ten? <laughs> so, um, I'm in my I'm in my early forties. Oh, um, so okay. I have been doing this for a while. In fact, um, you know, before I started my firm, I had worked in kind of big law for about six years, um, and I worked in a law firm for four years while I was going to law school at night. And mm -hmm. so, um, knocking on about two decades worth of experience in this space, despite my um, late 20s appearance. <laughs> right? Because, well, I'm sorry. I hope, I hope uh, you don't feel bad not about a, this. Not at all. But, not you know, that's the first thing I thought. Not like, how, how come? And then um, you are working with those top accelerators here. And um, how did you start these collaborations? Um, you know, how did it get started? How come? Yeah, great question. Yeah. So when I started my firm, it was actually in Ann Arbor. And I moved out here to San Francisco about 12 years ago, about after a year of working in Ann Arbor. And uh, I didn't know anybody. 
And so, so this, is a, this is a big space, like yeah. a big city. This, and if you include not just San Francisco, but the Silicon Valley, like mm -hmm. it's all, you know, an incredible ecosystem that's occurring here. Mm -hmm. um, I left Ann Arbor, and, but I still actually go back to that city uh, about uh, every two months or so. Um, it's an incredible city. Um, but I left because after a year, I was representing more or less all the startups that I could. Hmm. And it was just me. And I knew that I wanted to build a bigger firm. I didn't want something that was 100 people large, but I did want something that um, held like maybe 15, 20 people in a small boutique. So it's, yeah, like boutique, patent, uh, but I needed, office. But I needed a, a bigger um, ocean to, to fish from. All mm -hmm. right. And so that was a big part of the move out here. Um, this is the startup capital, and so that made sense. And why were you fascinated by, um, by startups? Yeah, so that's um, one place where the quality of the patent actually really, really matters. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about working for a Google or a General Motors or an IBM or Qualcomm, every single one of those patents is just part of this huge portfolio of 10,000 patents. And so they don't care about the individual quality of mm -hmm. that. But now shrink that down to a company that has two or three patents, or even a half a dozen or a dozen, every single one of those has to matter. And so they have to do their job. Um, they have to be written in a way that is flexible for the growth of that company and mm -hmm. still be relevant a few years mm -hmm. from now. Um, they have to have um, the foresight to be able to prevent others from designing around it. Um, that's the thing that actually really drives me is, hey, this is incredibly important, every single one that we file. And also, you not only work with startups and you know, uh, work on the patent um, applications, but you invest in some of them. Where did this come from? Was it because you were just you know, meeting those people that are doing great things? And yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard not to like, think about investing here in San Francisco, mm -hmm. but I actually thought about it um, as early as the beginning of my firm back in, in, in Ann Arbor. Um, a few companies came to us and said, we can't afford um, patents. Can you do this uh, for equity? And so I did this maybe uh, half a dozen, dozen times. Um, Terrible results. I mean, I probably put like a, a million dollars worth of, of you know of services, mm -hmm. and they all went to zero. Mm. And so, you know, scratched my head of just like, well, what can I do better here? Um, that there seems to be an opportunity, but I'm not attuned to this at all. Um, early days, of course, I thought the patents were the things that made startups, you know, valuable, um, valuable, but not only valuable, but like feasible okay. um, and viable. Um, and so, of course, patents don't play a very strong role. They are the icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not, it's not the cake itself. And so then it was, oh, well, maybe it's the technology that's super important. And that's the biggest factor. Um, over time, of course, learned that it's the people, it's the team, it's the founders, and the you know the people that um, she surrounds you know herself with, and so learned that kind of the hard way um, after you know all of these like really poor investments. Mm -hmm. This is probably seven or eight years ago now, and I started. I joined an invest investor group, an angel investment group, and I saw a couple hundred pitches. And it was a large crowd, and we would kind of dissect the um, pitch afterwards. And I started learning all of these things, all of these red flags of, wow, I wouldn't have thought about that, and I wouldn't have thought about this thing over here, and wouldn't have thought about that. And after a few years, I started to tune 
you know, kind of pattern match to, wow, this pitch is going to be loved by the crowd or this pitch is not. Mm -hmm. And so then I started using that same kind of framework for accepting clients. And so we looked for folks that are going to be fundable um, and then started to tune that to looking for folks that will be able to raise a Series A or a Series B. And the better and better that I got with that, the better and better my law firm did. And it just makes sense. So it also comes down a little bit to that they have to kind of pitch you so that you can, so that you decide to and this does them. And this does get a little right? tricky, right? So, you know, folks come to us, you don't think of like pitching your doctor or pitching yeah. your dentist, you know, or pitching no, your this therapist. This is kind of new. It's kind of new, right? And <laughs> right. it's kind of weird to go to a um, service provider and get turned down. Mm -hmm. um, and so... That is strange, so like that aspect of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's, it's also really tricky if I'm in a half an hour long conversation where I'm pitching my law firm, but I'm also um, evaluating their pitch mm -hmm. and who's pitching who, cool. <laughs> and that gets tricky. Um, and so I don't want to be known as, you know, solely as, as an investor. We've, I've spent, you know, a good portion of my life building up uh, my law firm. And that's who I am and what we do. Uh, but it's this other thing, you know, as with respect to the, the angel investing mm -hmm. that we do, um, that's additive to the law firm. And what's your next experiment? Uh, so we've ran quite a few experiments that mm -hmm. have failed. Um, I've actually tried to raise a venture fund about uh, three or four times now. Mm -hmm. um, I do have one now, and that's raised money, and that's going well. It's in a very, very particular space, um, autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. And so I have a great partner mm. um, who's a world expert in this space. And so lending some of my investment expertise um, to that venture, and then from that, hoping to kind of take, hey, how do I become even better um, early stage investor? And so want mm -hmm. to elevate what I've done to even a higher level to kind of bring that back to the law firm in terms of um, finding and kind of going out and making sure that we get the exact clients that we want. And Jeff, for those of our viewers and listeners who want to just reach out and say hi, how can they find you online or how they can reach out? Yeah, of course. Um, my last name Shocks, S-C-H-O-X. Um, and so you could find me pretty easily on um, you know, shocks.com. Um, you could find me on LinkedIn and on Twitter and AngelList. And so those are probably some of the best ways to get a hold of me. All right, Jeff. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure uh, to have you. It's been an honor. Thank you.